I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. With words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I'm doing right now is working my way through a mini-series designed to sort of revisit the not-so-humble origins of this show. Basically, I'm, I'm working my way through a mini-series right now. It's called Unfinished Business, and the concept here is actually really simple. I have recorded, let's see, this is 170 episodes of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and during that time, you listeners have heard me talk, usually at great length, about a particular comic book, and then I tell you how awesome it is, and then I tell you, hey, at some point in the future, I'm going to be coming back to this. I don't know when. But someday, I'm going to talk about more issues in this series. And invariably, the next episode is about something else entirely. Well, I've decided that someday is today. And so what I'm going to be doing, or what I have been doing, in fact, is spending just a little bit of time just kind of revisiting a lot of topics and and mostly comics but there was a movie as part of this series but mostly it's been comics that I said that someday I would come back to but so far haven't found the time for so here we are so I'm gonna kind of cheat a little bit this time though uh, one of the very first comics that I talked about during the uh, it during the life of this show this podcast one of the very first comics was, uh, uh, the Justice Society of America. Back in episode number six, I did a sort of double team of Young Justice in the first segment, and then in the second segment, Justice Society of America, the 1992 series by Lynn Straczewski and Mike Parobek, and talked about that, and then I said, now guys, someday I'm going to come back to that. And I'm actually going to play that card again here. Someday I will come back to that. But I wanted to talk about uh, the Justice Society, but at the same time, I, I wanted to talk about 
sort of my origin story with the Justice Society. And so really the best way to go about doing that is actually to talk about the Justice Society of America miniseries from 1991. This, you know, if we put a thumbtack in the map and say, this is where it started, well, this is where it started. Basically, these, and I, I truly cannot remember if I talked about this in episode six, so if I'm repeating myself, well, forgive me. But way back when I was a kiddo, uh, you could buy comics at at uh, gas stations and whatnot. And comic book companies were aware of this, and I'm and I assume they're also very well aware of the fact that profit margins on comics is pretty slim, especially for an outlet like a gas station, which has any number of far more lucrative products on their shelves. And so, the way it goes in my mind is somebody at one of these comics companies said, hey, our retailer, which is to say gas stations in this case, our retailer can actually make more money per widget if they sell packs of comics rather than just onesie, twosie comics, and then that's it. So somebody had the brilliant idea of basically packaging three, maybe four comics all in a single package and then selling those for, I don't know, whatever it was, like four bucks, five bucks, whatever it was. The idea here is that the higher, I guess the higher cost on these packs of comics makes for more profit for the, uh, for the gas station owner. And it's also a chance to put together a sort of a variety pack and introduce readers to titles with which they may not be familiar. And the only thing I can figure is this program must have been a crashing failure because this is one of those things that you saw it a little bit, but it wasn't it wasn't a super prevalent practice that I remember. So this is one of those little programs that kind of withered on the vine and never really went anywhere. And then that was basically the end of it. But one of the things and one of one of the comics in that in a package of comics that I bought, it was actually the fifth issue of this eight part Justice Society of America miniseries from 1991. And I knew The Flash, or thought I did, and yet here's a completely different person on the cover of this comic, and he's calling himself The Flash. So what the fuck? And I knew Hawkman, but the character, alongside the supposed Flash on the cover of uh, the fifth issue, didn't look very much like any Hawkman that I'd seen lately. So again, what the fuck? And there, I don't even know when, but there came a point when the what the fuck philosophy of the Justice Society gave way to a sort of awe, I guess. Understand, I was not, I mean, I, I read a lot of reprints of comics when I was a kid. Because that was just the nature of comics at the time. I mean, reprints were prevalent. You had things like the greatest Batman stories ever told, the greatest Superman stories ever told. Uh, DC had not... I think it was actually right around this time, they embarked upon um, a bunch of Silver Age reprints called Silver Age Classics. And so I knew from reprints, but somehow all of my 
all of my reprints mostly avoided the Justice Society of America. The very closest that I think I came to the Justice Society was in the autobiography of Bruce Wayne, which was reprinted in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, Volume 1. But even that, to my budding comic book enthusiast imagination, it wasn't... I guess the nature and the reality of Earth 2 just... I didn't really glom onto it as a result of that story. And if you just read it, it's not necessarily the case that you immediately understand that this is not the mainstream DC universe. This is actually Earth 2. And coming up as I was in the post-crisis era, Earth 2 wouldn't have really fucking meant anything to me anyway. So, I don't know. But anyway, the very closest that the autobiography of Bruce Wayne really came to addressing Earth 2 issue, like something specifically related to Earth 2 and nothing else, there's a sort of, as I recall, sort of a pinup page or a splash page or whatever the fuck you want to call it when Superman, or sorry, Batman's just kind of thinking about his friends and associates and you see Superman and you see Robin and you see Batwoman, but then you also see Starman and I believe you also see the Jay Garrick version of The Flash. And I thought, well, okay, I just don't know who those heroes are. It's not that they're somehow fucking part of Earth 2. It's just that I don't know who those characters are. And being as I was nine years old, I wouldn't have presumed to know everything there was to be known about comics at that time anyway. So anyway, like I said, it just, it didn't exactly, it didn't, it didn't click, I guess is maybe the best way to put it, that I was that this was Earth 2, that this is not the the usual Batman that I'm accustomed to reading. And honestly, I think the emotional content of that story, it's not necessarily exclusively Earth 2 in nature. I happen to believe that any Batman fan can read that story and enjoy it. And apparently the powers that were at DC agree with me because they put that that story, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne, into the greatest Batman stories ever told, Volume 1 from like 1988 or 1989 or something like that. And there's really not a great deal of explanation as to what exactly Earth 2 is, how it works, how it differs from Earth 1, so on and so on and so on. So like I say, that was, if you really want to split hairs, that technically was my introduction to Earth 2, but it's such a subtle introduction to Earth 2 that I didn't even realize that it was an introduction to Earth 2. So hopefully that all makes sense. So... As I say, my view of it is that my true introduction to Earth 2, and I think more appropriately, the Justice Society, is the fifth issue of the Justice Society of America miniseries from 1991, this eight-part miniseries, like I say. And that was the first real indication I got that I that there's an entire aspect of history in the DC comics universe about which I know nothing. And I think that my interest in the Justice Society is actually very similar to a lot of people's interest in that DC is the universe of the legacy character. You know, you've got Jay Garrick and he was the Flash in World War II. And then you have Wally West and he's the successor to Jay Garrick. And then you have... um, did I say Wally West? Sorry. If I said Wally West, just allow me to correct that. You had Wally West, right? And um, who was not the guy that we're talking about. 
And but this whole thing starts with Jay Garrick, the Flash of World War II. His successor is Barry Allen, and then Barry's successor is Wally West, and then Wally's successor is apparently in this modern era that we're that we're in. Once again, fucking Barry Allen, and I'll spare you that rant because you've probably heard it a thousand times on a thousand podcasts. Suffice it to say, I don't think that was the right decision to make, and I will say nothing more about it. But my point in all of this is to say that, you know, this idea of legacy characters, of a Green Lantern of yesteryear, a Green Lantern of today, and then a Green Lantern of tomorrow, and these are all different people, fascinates me. A Flash of yesteryear, a Flash of today, and then a different Flash tomorrow. And these are all different people from one another. That interests me. And... You could say even the Black Canary, you know, and God knows with Starman, you know, that is officially, I think, a legacy character now, you know, and really in more ways than one. But that's maybe outside the scope of this, this episode. But anyway, suffice it to say that this is the Justice Society. They were the first real attempt of the DC universe to of a team of superheroes coming together to deal with threats that individually they can't handle by themselves. And in the process, they basically create this occupation of being a superhero. And in fact, so new is it that there's not even the term superhero. That doesn't even exist. You know, that's what just fucking pioneers these guys are. And the balls of doing that, you know, the balls of going out there and, 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 facing off against the forces of evil all by yourself. And you don't have an instruction manual. There's nobody, there's, there's really nobody else's example that you can look to and say, Hey, this is how you do the job. You know, they don't have anything like that. They're writing the rules and rewriting the rules all by themselves every single fucking day. And they do such an amazing job. They are such transcendently inspirational figures of virtue and heroism and power that they basically inspire an entirely new generation to ultimately replace them. But I think the core value of the Justice Society of America is that you really don't truly replace the Justice Society. There may be other teams that fill the void or do similar things, there is no substitute for the Justice Society of America. And that's, that's just something that had truly never occurred to my little 10-year-old imagination. And so reading this, it was kind of, a, kind of a revelation. And it softened me up to become a bigger and bigger Justice Society fan as time went on. And so, and it all starts right here in this miniseries. Now, I'm not going to be... I, I, I'm, I, I feel like I've kind of rambled on, you know, quite a bit here, but it, it's important for you guys to understand that I don't really think, especially these days, I don't really think that anybody's necessarily born a Justice Society fan. This is something that you, that you discover, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a team. And I would say in some ways, sort of a philosophy that you just kind of stumble upon and then you can just kind of get swept away in just the awe of it, the awesomeness of it, you know, the power, the heroism. It's anyway, there's nothing quite like the justice society out there, at least in my opinion. And so that's that. Now, 
before I go any further with this, I'm very well aware of the fact that uh, Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner host Tales of the Justice Society. And I know that I at least kind of regard the Justice Society as being sort of their thing. And so that's part of the reason why I'm cheating today, because I don't want to have, when it comes to the Justice Society, I don't really have, I don't really want to have a a definitive type of podcast for the Justice Society. I want Tales of the JSA to be definitive. And that's part of the reason why I'm not talking about the ongoing series that started up in 1992, because I talked somewhat about that back in the sixth episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. It stands to reason that at some point, Tales of the JSA may talk about that at some point. And so I don't want them to, I don't want there to be competition, as it were. So, you know, I'm sure I'll probably come back to it someday after they've had their chance to go through it from beginning to end. But I don't want to, basically, I don't want to complicate their task, put it that way. And the other thing is, you know, I wanted to talk about the Justice Society, but do so in the context of what started my fandom of the Justice Society. And so that inexorably leads back to the eight-issue miniseries from 1991, as opposed to the ongoing series from 1992. So hopefully my logic here adds up for you guys. I don't know. So anyway, and there you have it. So without further ado, this is... The Justice Society of America, number one, which is cover dated April of 1991. And again, this is part one of eight. And, oh, and the cover price on this thing is $1. Can you fucking believe that? $1. Man, things have changed. So, anyway, uh, to get into the story, though, uh, basically, uh, it we start off at the Mount Pride Observatory, in the state of New Mexico, where basically this is the unveiling, I guess is maybe the best way to put it, of the Mount, the Mount Pride Observatory. This is basically Ted Knight's big chance to, I guess, cut the ribbon, so to speak, on, on uh, the new observatory here in New Mexico. And all of this gets interrupted by a crazy old man who says, This place is evil, I tell you. Evil. And rather than chase the lunatic out of the crowd and have him escorted off the premises by security, Ted Knight actually gives the guy uh, the microphone and basically lets him have his say. And what he has to say is basically a variation on the evil, evil stuff that I was just talking about. So anyway, he gives... Before he's taken off, hopefully to the loony bin, before he's taken off to the loony bin, he passes Ted Knight basically this huge roll of paper, and and he says, read this. So what do you want to bet that this is probably going to become important in not very long? So later that evening, uh, Ted basically lets himself into the observatory and starts his stargazing as he's wont to do. When, all at once, it's like one of the constellations comes to life, smiles at him, and then punches the telescope. All you can see is a huge crack in the lens. One week later, 
The Flash speeds over to the observatory at the behest of Ted Knight. Ted hasn't even hung up the phone yet from inviting the Flash over before the Flash arrives, proving once again that Jay Garrick truly is the fastest man alive. So, basically takes out a map of the United States and it's got several thumbtacks in it, all of which represent power stations that have been completely knocked offline by forces as yet unknown. And so the objective here is actually pretty simple. Identify whatever it is that's destroying these power stations and take it out. And so the Flash says, hey, sounds like a great idea. Let's go ahead and get to it. To which Ted replies, sorry, but it's not going to be that easy. And come to find out that Ted's gone full Xavier and he's confined to a wheelchair. And so he basically explains what happened the night he, w- he went uh, stargazing a constellation came to life, like I said, and basically fucked his shit up real good. So, Jay's basic point of view on all of this is, wow, that pretty much sucks. Well, I hope you feel better, so I'm going to go ahead and hit the road, and I'm going to take care of whatever beastie's causing all the problem here, and so he zips off. Out of the shadows, a shadowy figure steps, and covered in shadow, he says, Very well done, Mr. Knight. You've sent the flash... To his doom. Ted Knight replies, maybe not. He's still the Flash, and he's beaten you before. Which inspires someone, off-panel, somebody with a white hand, to serve Ted Knight just a little bit of the old pimp salad, so he gets backhanded as punishment for popping off to his master. Speaking of which, the master, whose identity remains a secret, says, come, slave, now we will deal with... The others. Meanwhile, Flash is zipping all around and makes his way over to the Boulder Dam uh, power station, basically saying, hey guys, some serious shit's about to go down here. A big beast is going to come along and fuck all your shit up, and this whole thing is going to really suck. Actually, it was probably a little bit more articulate than that, but I'm taking a little bit of artistic license here. Shut up. Don't judge me. So, anyway. Anyway, out of nowhere... A huge being of light and what looks to be stars and other protoplasmic junk springs into existence. And from there, the fight's on. The Flash does all in his power to bring the beast down, but nothing works. Eventually, he and some of the workmen at the power station try to trap the uh, celestial being or whatever the fuck this thing is into some power lines, and that does a lot to weaken and tamp down the being's energy. But so far, he's still there, and he's still fighting. Elsewhere, at Casa Ted Knight, an Orson Welles lookalike is on TV basically saying, government officials say that if Boulder Dam is knocked off the nationwide grid during this attack, power could be shut down across the entire country. Ted announces, the Flash is winning. I told you that he'd beat you. To which the shadowy, mysterious enemy figure says, beaten me? Hardly. The game has just begun. Now arrange for an airplane. It is time for my other servants to begin their errands. To which Ted Knight replies, yes, sir. His master replies, ah, that's better. That's a better attitude. Now both of you... Go on about your assignments. And we see that the 
guy with the white hands is actually white all over. And in fact, holy shit, this is Solomon Grundy. Whatever could be going on. Elsewhere, the battle continues at the power station while the Flash and the workmen at the power station try like crazy to defeat the monster, who at that moment chooses to transform from the shape of a man into, a sh into the shape of a dog, who then goes on the attack, starts fucking up some more shit, and basically causing some more mayhem. As he's causing more mayhem, he knocks some shit over and sends a girder flying, which smacks the Flash in the back and pretty much sacks him out for a good long while. He then starts chewing up girders and causing other kinds of chaos, and it sure looks like he's going to knock the, polder, the uh, Boulder Dam power station offline. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, this is just... You guys need to understand that it took a lot of balls for DC to publish this story during 1991 because the really the prevailing trend in comics at this uh, at this time was to get grim and gritty grim and grittier grim and grimmest and grittiest you know and it was this is just so completely against what was the public mood that the fact that DC had the cojones to publish this miniseries should just about tell you how much they truly do believe or did believe in the Justice Society of America. I mean, really, from beginning to end, there's basically nothing about this that fits in with the public mood in terms of what the kids were buying uh, with comics at this time. And I really, I mean, on the one hand, I really do admire, you know, DC for having the vision, and I would say the courage to publish not just a Justice Society of America comic book, but it's a period piece. And it's not just a period piece. It's set specifically in 1950. And it's not just set in 1950. I would say that in a weird kind of way, this is... The comic itself is a little bit of a throwback to the types of stories that, were, that would be told in the 1950s. And, well, I would say maybe the 1940s and the 1950s. But whatever. You get the idea. And... I mean, that's, guys, that's balls, you know? I mean, this is, a, this is a cast of characters that I would say the majority of comic book fans under the age of 22 probably didn't know a whole lot about. It's a period piece, so like I say, that kind of immediately divorces it from a setting that most people would find just inherently familiar. It's not the modern day. It's set in 1950, so that's another obstacle to be overcome. And then, like I say, the tone of this book is more just superhero type of adventure. It's not trying to be all grim and dark and, you know, all that kind of pretentious bullshit. It's, it's absolutely content to be just a, a fun-loving, high-riding, flashy superhero adventure, you know? And it, it's not trying to deconstruct superheroes or show a, a bunch of ridiculous over-the-top violence or, or any or anything like that it's just good classic fun comics and anyway like i said i just really admire dc for for taking this approach and 
honestly, I mean, this story is pretty airtight in, in so far as it goes. I mean, it's really got two things that it needs to do. It needs to, first of all, establish the fact that Mount Pride Observatory is open for business, which it does, in just three pages, by the way. And then it can spend the, the remainder of the, the issue basically just having just a fun superhero romp with the Flash. And you can understand just why it is that Barry Allen looks up to Jay Garrick. I mean, Wally West looks up to Barry Allen. Barry Allen is a legend. What does it say that Barry Allen, a fucking legend like him, looks up to Jay Garrick and says, man, that guy is awesome. Well, here we get a little sample of just why that is. I think the the core thing that most people, like if you knew nothing at all, nothing whatsoever about Jay Garrick and you read this issue, one of the things that uh, that you'd come away thinking is that this is a guy with balls of solid rock, number one. But number two, I mean, you just cannot break this guy. I mean, look, guys, I don't know about the rest of you. I don't care how fast I can run. If I come across this sort of celestial protomatter gelatin monster glowy energy fucker like he did, the last thing I'm going to do is sit there <clears throat> cracking jokes and making fun, dude. I'm going to get the hell out of there. But Jay talks smack to the guy the whole time, this monster, and then proceeds to run rings around him and make him look like a friggin' idiot, you know? And he damn near wins the fight all by himself. He doesn't... I mean, for a goodly bit of this fight, he doesn't even need any help. Now, he's gonna obviously need help to, to really defeat this monster, but he did more than half the work all by himself. And guys, that's tough. So... Anyway, I mean, what, my point here is to say that pretty much in one fell swoop, you get a very clear understanding of, of why at least Jay Garrick is a legend. And so, I don't know, all of that, my point is all of that just sort of works for me. And there are some other kind of nice touches. You know, the shadowy, mysterious villain figure sits there watching TV. It's a news report, and damned if the newscaster doesn't remind at least me of Orson Welles. I mean, maybe this is actually supposed to be somebody else. I don't think it's, I don't think it's Murrow, but I don't know. It's, he just kind of looks to me like Orson Welles. And so whatever you want to make of that. And overall, I mean, this is, this is a story that is, it's just, it's very sincere. It's very straight laced. It's not ironic. It's not um, any kind of a parody. It's not a send-up of superheroes um, in the Golden Age or anything like that. It's not making fun of the Justice Society. It's not making fun of the 1950s. It's not making fun of anything. It's just telling a fun adventure story. And I don't know. Then as now, like I say, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here, but this is this is something that I really admire DC for having the you know having the uh, the courage to do. But it occurs to me now that I never actually gave the credits, or for that matter, the title of this. So I think that maybe says something about how excited I was to talk about all of this. But the title of this uh, of this issue is Vengeance from the Stars, Chapter 1. Title of which is Beware the Savage Skies. 
Writer is Lynn Strazuski. Artist is Rick Burchette, or Burchet, or Burkett, or however the fuck you pronounce that guy's name. Letterer is Janice Chang. Colorist is Tom Zayuku. Editors are Brian Augustine and Mike Gold. So, anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for the first issue. Moving on to Justice Society of America, number two. Cover date is May 1991. Cover price is $1, which I'll never get tired of saying. Writer is Lynn Strazuski. Artist is Grant. I'm not even sure how to pronounce this. Uh, it's spelled M-I-E-H-M. So, meme, 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 mime. I don't know. Letterer is Janice... Sorry, not Janice. Janice Chang. Colorist is Tom Zayuko. And editors are Mike Gold and Brian Augustine. Pretty straightforward, actually. The issue starts outside of a, a television shop. Several televisions are playing an announcement from Alan Scott, which is to say the uh, he's the vice president and general manager of Gotham Broadcasting Company, Channel 6. He says they're experiencing intermittent power failures, but they're going to continue to broadcast as long as they possibly can. And so that ends up getting, shall we say, challenged by a group of, let's face it, they're basically a group of extras from Reefer Madness who decide that they need to do a little bit of looting. So they bash out one of the windows of the, of the television shop and start loading TVs into their car. And this is the kind of thing, actually, that they probably need help for, because back in the 50s, if you could even find a TV... I mean, that, those things weighed like 100 pounds or something like that. I mean, shit, you could kill somebody with that. So, anyway, that ends up getting interrupted, though, because the Black Canary roars up on her motorcycle and then starts kicking the shit out of all of these would-be uh, thieves. It's not even a competitive fight. I mean, it goes on for two pages, but it's... Black Canary does just fine for herself. As all that's going on, or actually as soon as it's over, she hears an announcement on the police band radio saying, Hey, shit's going down at the museum. We need everyone to get over there as, po as soon as possible because some big son of a bitch just kicked my ass and I need all the help I can get. So Black Canary hauls balls over to the museum, finds the cop outside who basically says, Hey, yeah, some big son of a bitch just came along and kicked my ass, like I said on the police band radio just a page ago. So, Black Canary goes inside, finds a dead uh, security guard inside, and she notices that the security guard died from a broken neck, which when you think about it, it's an odd way to die inside of a museum. So, she comes across some thieves in the museum who are getting ready to smash open a display case and make off with the contents thereof, and then a royal ass kicking ensues. Black Canary once again proves why she's a member of the Justice Society of America because she, it takes a couple of pages, but she ends up beating the absolute stuffings out of, out of these would-be thieves. And in the bargain, what she eventually discovers is, is what exactly it is that they're, that they're attempting to steal. And she notices that this is, it's, it's called the, the Crown of Cheops. Dates to just about 2000 BC. Thought to be the favorite headdress of Cheops, the uh, Egyptian pharaoh and builder of the Great Pyramid. 
An astrologer, as well as a ruler, Cheops was said to be the originator of the worship of the celestial beings and the mentor of Ptolemy, the first astronomer. So if you're expecting this thing to be cursed in some way or another, as would be kind of stereotypical of these types of stories, you're out of luck, my friend, because there's no curse mentioned anywhere on this page. So after that, Black Canary starts wondering about this. She says, hey, wait a minute. The cop said that there were something like four or five uh, people who'd broken into the museum, but I only kicked ass on three of them. The fuck's going on? Which is just about the time that Solomon Grundy and the fifth thief wander into the room and then all hell breaks loose when they realize that Black Canary is not only on the scene, but she's actually beating the shit out of the other thieves. From there, a fight ensues between uh, Black Canary and Solomon Grundy, and oddly enough, Black Canary actually makes a really good accounting of herself, and she manages to beat Solomon Grundy senseless with just objects that she finds stashed around the museum before using judo on the guy and then throwing him out a window. She follows him outside, patting herself on the back as she does so for taking out Solomon Grundy, when at that moment, Grundy gets up and apparently he's not as badly injured as Black Canary originally assumed. Black Canary continues to fight back, but she's starting to feel just a little bit overwhelmed. Right around then, police backup arrive and they start perforating Solomon Grundy with their 38 police chief specials, but it's just not enough. His, their bullets are just not affecting Solomon Grundy. Out of nowhere, the lights come back on and Solomon Grundy gets royally pissed and demands that Lantern come down and fight, show himself. Black Canary tries to restrain Solomon Grundy, but the thieves from inside the museum have apparently woken up. They sneak up behind her, smack her over the head with one of those head-smacking things that you always see in old movies, and then say, put her in the crate with the rest of this stuff. Meanwhile, overhead, Green Lantern is having it out with what he calls Orion. He says, back off, Bowman. This is my livelihood you're messing with. So, meanwhile, as all of that's going on, at the observatory in New Mexico, Ted Knight is, 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 still being <clears throat> is still being held captive by a shadowy, mysterious stranger who's carrying around Ted's own cosmic rod. He says, Yes, Ted Knight, the Flash has failed. Back in the first issue, it looked like the Flash was kicking ass on, on that monster that I conjured, but nope. The monster kicked his ass. Orion has absorbed the electrical power of all the major hydroelectric plants, and the country is now in darkness, except where I choose. But I have not had the pleasure of experiencing the death of my old enemy. Yet. So Ted sits there, moping and sulking over the fact that, yes, this truly is his fault, and the shadowy, mysterious stranger says, Dude, this is your fault in ways you don't even understand. I was at the observatory, and I gotta tell you, man, you played right into my hands. All I had to do was dress like a weirdo, and then say that this observatory is evil, evil, and you fell for it. It's at that moment that the shadowy, mysterious stranger drops his fake beard that he wore in issue number one, 
when he crashed the news conference. And then he says, you were foolish enough to make it all so easy. Ha, 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 ha. The end is near. Ha. Truer words were never spoken. Ha, 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 ha. Now stop whimpering, slave. There is much still to do. And thanks to this trinket of yours, by which I mean the cosmic rod that I have to mention by name because this podcast listeners can't actually see it, I have the power like I never had before. Ha, 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 ha. Now I'm going to go outside. Behold, Ted Knight, the next doom in your civilization. Wah, wah, wah. And the shadowy, mysterious stranger blasts off some sort of vague, ill-defined light into the nighttime sky. And then, he's, and then it takes form. And then the shadowy, mysterious stranger says, Behold, Sagittarius. Wah, 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 wah. He's going to kick everybody's ass. To be continued. So, what did I think? I gotta tell you, this, this miniseries, it starts off good and is getting just better and better with every passing issue. I'm, basically, I think it would be fair to say that I'm of the opinion that this is, this miniseries is, if you knew nothing at all whatsoever about the Justice Society, this is actually the very best introduction that I that I think is that that you're likely to find. I mean, these are just very good, very fun. Like I said uh, before in the last segment, these are very good and very fun superhero comics. But it seems, at least so far, that the the approach that Len Straczynski is taking is it's basically to let a single character kind of have the spotlight, you know, and carry the majority of the action, which, oddly enough, is kind of true to the origins of the Justice Society, because that was the way that a lot of their early stories were structured. So, points for consistency there. The other thing, though, going on in all this, is that it, without being obnoxious about it, it shows why it is that Black Canary belongs on the Justice Society. I mean, this isn't. there's really not any kind of affirmative action that's going on with this. She truly has earned her slot, you know, her membership on the team. And it's kind of fun to, to see that, you know, she's kind of an adventurer, sort of a smart mouth. And as much as anything, I mean, she likes... I think she kind of likes the thrill and the fights and the danger and all that stuff. And it's just tons of fun. There's this moment in the museum where, like, she just won't shut up. She just keeps making fun of the uh, of the thieves and the crooks and stuff, even though they are shooting guns at her and trying to kill her. And that actually kind of leads into the one kind of, I don't know, kind of quibble, I guess, that I've got with with this issue is that she has a thought balloon that's, where she says, Handguns are just too easy to get these days. There ought to be a law. Fuck you. Anyway. So, other than that, though, this is this is a, just a really fun comic book. And, like I say, it's just adventure. It's fun. And the thing is, it's a really... Each of, each of these issues so far has been a really good little miniature character study of why it is that, the, that this particular team member belongs on the team. It was... Jay Garrick in the last issue. It's Black Canary in this one. And you can kind of get an, uh, an idea of not just how tough they are and not just the way that their minds work, but also 
I guess their methods, you know? Jay Garrick uses his super speed pretty much to solve all of his problems. And I'm not saying that, you know, to be a smartass or anything. I'm just saying because, well, bugging it's, it's kind of true. So he, he tends to use his super speed to solve all of, all of uh, his problems. He finds a way to apply that one, I guess that one solution to whatever problem he happens to be facing at that given moment. And then he just runs with it, so to speak. And that's not the same way that Black Canary rolls. She she uses her surroundings to her advantage. Or if if she needs to uh, trade punches with somebody, she does that. If she has to use you know a weapon to you know beat somebody senseless, she'll do that. If she has to use judo um, to uh, to defeat her opponent, she'll do that. If she has to rely on police backup. She'll do that. She doesn't have just one mode of thinking. She uses a bunch of different ways to survive and to win her fights. You know, she doesn't, she's not a one-trick pony is what I'm saying. And I'm not saying, I don't mean it in a bad way that Jay Garrick kind of was in issue number one. I'm just saying that he used his speed in very creative ways because really that's the one power that he's got. Whereas Black Canary, she's got her wits and honestly her kind of reckless nature. And that's what enables her to survive all of these just fucking incredibly dangerous things that she finds herself doing. So anyway, it's a good little character, good little character analysis for both of them that they handle in their own ways, kind of similar problems in very different ways. And it's very complimentary in that sense. So anyway, so I think that's just about it for issue number two, though. As to Justice Society of America number three, this is Vengeance from the Stars, Chapter 3, the title of which is Dead Air. Writer is Len Strazuski. Penciler is Mike Parabek. Inker is Rick Bershay. Letterer is Janice Cheng. Colorist is Tom Zayuko. And editors are Brian Augustine and Mike Gold. Cover price is $1. Cover date is June of 1991. And basically this picks up and kind of ties in with issue number two. Basically it picks up with Alan Scott sitting in the, sitting in the news studio saying, I'm Alan Scott, vice president of, and general manager of Gotham Broadcasting Company, Channel 6. We are experiencing intermittent power failures throughout the tri-state area, but we will continue to broadcast as long as we possibly... It was right around then. The power cuts out and the broadcast comes to an end. And that is... This may be a little bit of a nitpick on my part, but I don't know if it was actually technologically possible back back in 1950 to do a live television broadcast to my understanding i could be wrong about this but to my understanding that technology was still a few years off in fact one of the kind of interesting things at least about radio broadcast was that in uh, uh during world war ii it wasn't actually possible at least in the united states to do a live radio broadcast. A lot of people don't know that. It wasn't actually possible to do. Now, at least not using American technology. Now, the Germans figured out a way to broadcast live via radio, and so they they did so, but 
they basically had developed, you know, specialized technology to do that job. And the other thing is, this is, again, it's kind of an unknown fact, but the Third Reich actually had television. And so they were doing live TV broadcasts at a time when America struggled and usually wasn't able to do a live radio broadcast. So they were pretty far ahead of the curve there. And so what I assume happened is that during Operation Paperclip, when America took a bunch of uh, German patents, uh, that was those were some of the things that they brought with them, the ability to do a live broadcast. I mean, I'm sure we probably would have figured it out eventually, but, you know, we pilfered it, and that's that's where it at least germinated from. So, so there is that. But my point is that what we're seeing right here, I don't think would have been technologically possible to do with television at that time. So maybe it would have, but I, I just haven't seen anything to really convince me of all of that. But anyway, get, uh, to, to get into the story, though, this basically overlaps quite a bit with uh, Justice Society of America number two, where goings-on with this power grid is basically fucking things up for Alan Scott. But at the same time, Black Canary is having her showdown with Solomon Grundy at the museum directly across the street. So we're seeing basically some of the same things from different perspectives. Speaking of which, just above the, the GBC uh, uh, building's, I guess, headquarters, station, whatever you want to call it, their building, the GBC building, there appears out of thin air yet another giant celestial being. It's basically a, a, uh, a living constellation is pretty much what we're talking about. And being as it's a, this person has a bow... Pretty much what we're talking about here is Sagittarius. So Alan Scott wastes no time uh, before ducking into a storeroom and then reciting his... Uh, actually, not a storeroom. This is his office, vice president. Anyway, he recites his Green Lantern Oath. I shall shed my light over dark evil, for the dark things cannot stand the light. The light of the Green Lantern... And then he swoops out the window and throws down with, well, let's face it, Sagittarius. So, basically, Green Lantern throws everything in his bag of tricks at him, meaning Sagittarius. And it's this fight is just not going his way. Uh, everything that he tries to do isn't working. It's it, He's basically, he's not exactly getting his ass kicked, but he's not exactly winning the fight either. So he eventually gets the wise idea of conjuring a straitjacket for Sagittarius, who chooses that moment to transform into a giant eagle. And he's now even bigger than, than uh, the Sagittarius bow hunter guy was. Meanwhile, down on the street, Solomon Grundy's basically losing his mind over the fact that he wants a piece of, of Green Lantern in a bad way. And unfortunately for him... Green Lantern's a little bit off, uh, occupied right now, uh, squaring off with giant eagle Sagittarius, dude. And so Solomon Grundy pretty much loses his shit over that, wrenches a phone booth out of the ground. I should mention here that the phone booth is made predominantly of wood. Throws the phone booth a couple hundred feet into the air. It smashes into Green Lantern and then takes him out like 
yesterday's trash. And the thugs who have kidnapped Black Canary are obviously in league with the shadowy, mysterious villain guy who's holding Ted Knight captive. And their orders are basically to take Black Canary back to their boss, who I'm going to be coming back to in just a few moments. And Grundy just doesn't want to hear any of that. Here he's got a chance to kill Green Lantern, and he wants to do it. He moves in for the kill, but then gets promptly interrupted by the giant eagle Sagittarius dude who snaps up Green Lantern in one of his claws, Black Canary in the other, and swoops off all while Solomon Grundy has a pretty big fit over that. Meanwhile, as all that stuff is going on, back at the observatory, the shadowy, mysterious villain continues to menace, shall we say, uh, Ted Knight. And he's still playing around with the cosmic rod. And then he says, ah, Ted Knight, it's so good to be victorious again. I was so depressed after the war. I thought that little Nazi held such promise. If it wasn't for all those new inventions, the radar and the damned atomic bomb, we would have succeeded. Ted Knight then speaks up saying, you would never have beaten, beaten us. Even without those things, we would have won the war. And I'm going to put this on pause and say, you know what, there's actually, I think history is kind of on Ted Knight's side with that. Because when you think about it, I think history manifestly shows that Germany was capable of kicking the shit out of, um, out of uh, uh, Britain. Clearly, they could kick the shit out of France. My firm belief is that if they'd launched Operation Barbarossa three weeks earlier, they would have beaten the shit out of the Soviets. And I think they were... My point here is to say that of the, of the four main allies, the major ones... I think it, history is pretty clear that Germany could could take on any three of them at the same time, but not all four. And America's mere presence in World War Two uh, is ultimately what turned the tide against Germany and the Axis powers. So I don't really think it was so much the the technology that we developed. I mean, I guess maybe there's there's maybe an element of that, perhaps. But um, I don't really think it was so much technological superiority because uh, really and truly, I don't think we had it in, um, in the World War II. But we, you know, we eventually developed new things that I, I would suspect are you know, very much foreign to uh, uh, warfare at that time. But this idea that you know, we beat you know, Germany with superior technology, I just don't think history bears that out. Um, I think that had America had to fight Germany all by itself, Germany would have beaten the fuck out of us and probably never even looked back. I don't think Germany would have necessarily had enough of a military force to occupy America long term. I don't think that would have been realistic. So I think the most that they probably could have contented themselves with is basically appointing a new government and then leaving us to our devices. But I don't think they would have had the muscle for a long-term occupation. So that's just that's just my reading of things. But my point is, I actually, I think that Ted Knight's actually right about that when he says that, we, that even without the technology that we developed, we still would have won the war. 
I really do believe that simply because, you know, weight of numbers says that Germany could not fight the entire ally war, ally, uh, war machine all by itself. And in effect, there's a, there's a degree to which that's kind of what they were doing at, at, at one point. And I don't know. It's just, like I say, I mean, if they'd launched Operation Barbarossa even three weeks sooner, I think that there's a very strong argument that World War II would have gone very differently. But um, that's something that, you know, we're never going to know for sure. But my point, again, and I'm sorry to keep rambling here and kind of tangenting, but my point is, actually, I, th I, I do think uh, Ted Knight was right. Pretty much um, the moment America entered World War II, it's it was pretty much lights out for the for the Axis powers. It may have taken time to actually accomplish accomplish that from a military standpoint, but it was basically a a, a done deal at that moment. So anyway, so all of this though is sort of a long way of saying. Well, actually, I'm 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 going to come back to a minor little spoiler here in just a second. But Ted Knight says you would never have beaten us. Even without those things, we would have won the war. And the shadowy, mysterious villain says, you think so? You know, I prefer the old days and the old ways. And when my creatures have devoured all the electricity and radio energy, except for what I choose to keep, we will have those days again. Ted replies, the Justice Society of America will beat you yet. So the shadowy, mysterious... Villain turns on the TV and says, Look at this, Knight. Never would I have believed those, believed those centuries ago when Ptolemy told me of his belief in living constellations that they would make me emperor of the future. And on, televi and on television. You know, when I, when I rule everything, perhaps I'll keep television. And I must say... If you haven't already figured out who the shadowy, mysterious villain is, it can only be because you're just not all that familiar with the Justice Society. But I don't think it's a huge spoiler at this point to say that, yes, this is this certainly seems to be. I mean, I, I don't want to say for sure yet, but this certainly seems to be Vandal Savage. So anyway, that's just... I mean... I realize that, you know, they're, they're kind of shooting for a, a dramatic reveal and they want to give you clues. But honestly, just what's said on, on, uh, here on page 16, if you can't figure out who this, who this villain is, it's only because you don't know, like I was saying, you don't know very much about the Justice Society. And if you don't know very much about the Justice Society, 10 to 1, you're not going to know who Vandal Savage is anyway. So what's it worth? Anyway, I think that pretty much does it for right now. Um, actually, you know what, before I end this, I actually want to go through the, uh, I want to go through the letter column because here in issue three, they actually start getting letters in. Uh, there are basically advanced copies that, uh, DC sent out of the first issue, basically photocopies. They sent them out to, uh, certain readers, subscribers, I would guess, and saying, Hey guys, what do you think about this? You know, basically they need fodder for their letter column. And so... The consensus here in the third issue, but also in issues to come, is if you, if you believe that this whole idea of, you know, fans feeling disenfranchised and 
pissed off about goings on in modern day comics and all of this type of stuff. If you think that's a new, like a new phenomenon, buddy, you need to read this letter column because man, oh man, people are seriously pissed, right? So I'll give you an example. This is an this was a letter that was sent in by Mike Miller from Indianapolis, Indiana. He writes, "What can I say about Beware the Savage Skies?" I could say that it isn't dark and gritty like most of today's quote-unquote realistic comics. I could say that it was a 180-degree turnaround from Roy Thomas's depressing mythic story that killed the team off several years back. I could say that it did a good job in capturing the mood of the Golden Age JSA, complete with individual members going off on their own before they, presumably in later issues, regrouped off the bad guys as a team. I could say that Lynn's words and Rick's artwork were first-rate throughout. I could say all that. Instead, I'll just say it was fun. This was one of the best reads I've had in a long time. A welcome change of pace from the Dark Knight feel of the rest of the DC line, without resulting in the goofball humor of the JLI. Of course, I like any comic that contains my favorite Golden Age heroes, but this story did them proud. Good job, guys. And honestly, the sentiment, I mean, he, he's a little bit passive aggressive in that letter, but I'm here to tell you the sentiment in, you know, subsequent letters, well, it's not much more, shall we say, affectionate towards what was the modern DC universe at that time. And so my point is to say that if you guys feel like this whole, this whole notion of being so pissed off, you can't even see straight about goings on in the DC universe and you know, how fucked up continuities become and so on and so on and so on. Dude, this is not a recent thing at all. I mean, apparently it's a comic book fan's birthright to always be pissed off about what's happening in comics. So, anyway, I just thought that was a lot of fun. And you know what? Who knows? Maybe I'll talk more about their letter columns, the letter columns in these issues in uh, the next JSA episode I do, but I'm not really sure when that's going to be. But hopefully I've proven by now that yes, I can in fact be trusted to eventually revisit these things when I say that I will. So there's something to look forward to, huh? Anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me this week. I mean, I think I'm pretty much talked out, at least when it comes to these three issues of the Justice Society. So that's good. But as it goes for next week, I'm going to I'm gonna be continuing Unfinished Business. I'm, I'm not really sure that I want to say what exactly it's going to be just yet because I still need to work out a few of the details in terms of getting all of this put together. What I talk about next week may very well in, uh, require that not just a guest host join me, but one particular guest host join me. So I don't want to make promises that I may not be able to keep. So normally right around here is when I tell you that, you know, what it is that's going to be coming next week. It's just that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that this time. So, But rest assured, Unfinished Business continues next week. But as for this week, I think that's pretty much it for me. So bye, everybody. I'll see you next time.
Is your entire life populated with liars? Ever wondered if you're talking to somebody who's completely full of shit? Well then, have we got the app for you. Juked My Chronics is proud to present the Lie Detector app. Yes, as seen on TV, the Juked My Chronics Lie Detector app is here. And does it work? Bet your balls it works. All you have to do is turn on the Lie Detector app, hold your phone up to your Mark's mouth, and ask them to repeat their last statement. And within mere moments, the Juked Lie Detector app will tell you if your Mark fed you a line of total horseshit, or if they're telling you more truth than a 9-11 conspiracy video. The Juked Micronics Lie Detector app. Perfect for job interviews, Al-Qaeda terrorist interrogations, and double-checking your teenage daughter's alibi. The Lie Detector app. Now available from Juked Micronics. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am. Or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. Adventures of Superman on the big screen and the small screen, starting with the Fleischer Shorts. The Kirk Allen movie serials. Superman and the Mole Men. The 1950s television series. The Adventures of Superman. The Christopher Reeve movies. Lois and Clark. 
Superman the Animated Series, and more. Come check out the Man of Screen podcast at themanofscreen.podomatic.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link Donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. 
Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>